Why don't we open our Bibles now to the book of Acts, chapter 15. If you guys don't have Bibles, you raise your hand. We have uh, people that would love to get your Bible. We have been in a series uh, throughout the book of Acts for quite some time. Took a few uh, weeks off uh, throughout the end of November, all the way throughout the uh, end of the year. And uh, we're getting back into the book of Acts. And uh, it's the story of the early church uh, moving forth uh, in and around the world. Christianity started off, obviously, as this community of people that were basically birthed out of uh, the Holy Land, uh, a.k.a. Uh, Jerusalem. And as the faith began to grow, as people began to go out, as uh, oftentimes aided by um, external uh, persecution and challenges and difficulties, this faith that was once kind of nurtured and cradled within Jerusalem began to expand and go over all around the world. Um, into parts of Greece and Asia Minor, which would be like modern-day Turkey, uh, throughout Rome, um, all around the ancient known world. In fact, today, if you look on a map and try to like, go you know, Wikipedia, uh, you'd see that Christianity is not really um, isolated to one particular country. It's literally all around the entire world. And that's kind of shocking because it's, it really truly is a universal uh, relationship with God, a universal religion, if you want to think of it in that context, that God has taken this thing global. It's not necessarily isolated one part of the world. It's all around the world. It is truly universal in that sense. And this is really the story. It's a chronicle of this story. It's uh, read or written by a guy by the name of Luke, and uh, we've been just kind of following along and making notes and comments upon what Luke has narrated for us with regard to the story. Now, Acts chapter 15 is, is unique. There, it is somewhat of a pivot point in the entire book because it now begins to deal with uh, controversy. Yes, controversy. It's actually a theological controversy, and don't fall asleep yet. Uh, it does have to do with theology. Uh, it's actually a really important theological controversy that needed to kind of come to a head and then be examined, cross-examined, and then uh, rendered and dealt with and, and addressed. And that's what we see is kind of the story of this, uh, this controversy actually being addressed. And so what we'll do this morning is we'll just look at Two specific things. We'll look at uh, really the first 11 verses of chapter 15. And uh, I titled this morning, Controversy and Clarification. Kind of super, like not super creative, but in, there you go. It's, it's about the controversy that arises, and it's also about the clarification that uh, then follows after the controversy. So um, I'm going to read, and I'll pray, and then uh, we'll get to work. Taking a look at what is the controversy, and then really, more importantly, what is the clarification? Uh, how did the early church deal with this controversy? Whatever it is. Verse 1, chapter 15, starts off, says this. This is God's word. But some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no uh, dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem and to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia, Samaria, uh, describing in detail the conversation, or the conversion, I should say, of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some of the brothers, or some of the believers who had belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they rose up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. 
And after there had been uh, much debate, Peter then finally stood up and he said, Brothers, you know that from the early days God had made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor have been able to bear, nor we? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. Let me pray. God, this is your word. And we want our hearts to respond rightly to your word. So God, give us um, eyes that don't just simply see but perceive. God, give us hearts that are, are quick to want to align our lives with your heart. God, if there are areas where we are out of sync with the way that you've designed world, the world to be, God, we want to synchronize our hearts with you. We want to trust you. We want to be in agreement with you. We want to say yes, Lord, to you. So God, we commit this time in your hands, and we pray that you would help us to learn and grow and ultimately to be transformed. So we pray and ask all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was thinking about this. That chapter 15 is, is a really, really rich meal. It's really dense. It's really full. It's really filling. And I was thinking, like, not all meals are created equally, just like, like not all hamburgers are created equally. Like, a Eureka burger is vastly different than Habit. Habit's really good, all right? Uh, which one's better, Habit or In-N-Out? Anybody? Habit burger, In-N-Out? Habit, In-N-Out? All right, it's a debate. Uh, we'll just let you guys duke it out. But the reality is um, not all meals are created, created equal. I mean, there, there are some meals that when you sit down, you just want to savor it. You don't want to rush through it. You want to enjoy it. I was thinking about this meal that I had with my family a couple weeks ago. There's this great restaurant down in South County called Ember. If you've never heard of it, never been to it, it's fantastic. And if you are ever looking to give me uh, cards, like, I, I like Ember. I'm just kidding. It's a shameless plug. Um, but it's one of our favorite restaurants. And uh, everything on the menu there is, is fantastic. And you don't eat through it quickly. You just savor it. You enjoy it. That's different than when you go to have it, you just you, you shove it in your face, you eat, uh, or Chipotle, you just, you know, you, you just imbibe it fast, quickly. Um, the, this passage is, is dense, it's rich, it's filled with lots of intense flavors and textures, and reality of this passage is really intense. There's a lot here, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I only wanted to kind of look at uh, 11 verses as we kind of go in. It's going to take us several weeks to go through this because of its richness, its density. And uh, I think if we just give our hearts and our minds to this, we'll, we'll be rewarded by it. There's, there's a lot of truth, a lot of information, a lot of wealth of wisdom. I think the author of this book is wanting to impart to us. If we listen, we hear, we can be transformed, changed, truly changed. So with that being said, what I want to look at here this morning are just two specific things, like kind of a two-point message. One, we'll just take a look at the controversy, like try to really wrap our minds around like what was really going on. And uh, whatever it was, was so intense that it actually threatened to destroy this early movement. So a lot of times we think about the early church as being like full of love and everybody cared about each other and sold their goods to give away to the poor and there was that going on. But also at the same time, there were situations and teachings and contexts and circumstances that were happening that actually threatened to totally destroy this thing. 
I'll give you an example. That if the way that this thing was uh, brewing, if it was not dealt with rightly, in other words, if it just, if it, if it let the, if it, it was, if, if it was allowed to go the way that it was intending to go in verse 1, what that would mean for the landscape of Christianity would look vastly different. Let me give you an example. If what was being stated in verse 1 and later on, I think verse 5, something like that, what these uh, Pharisees or religious people were saying, thus they were saying, like, you've got to be circumcised in order to be saved. What that would look like is our churches in America, 2,000 years later, would look vastly different. So if you were to come to Calvary Slow, you'd be like, I want to get saved. Like, what we would do is we would not take you in the back room for prayer. We would take you in the back room, if you were a dude, uh, to circumcise you. Like, like, that's what it would look like. If you want to get saved, here's the knife. Just pray the prayer, accept Jesus in your heart, and, and pastor, you know, so-and-so will circumcise you. Because I, I won't do that. I don't like blood. But the pa- fact of the matter is, is that Christianity would look vastly different. And by the way, here's the handbook of all 613 rules for you to follow and live. And by the way, if you have any, you know, like shrimp laying around in your freezer or lobsters, you can stop eating that, knock it off. Don't ever go to Firestone and get the pork sandwich because all of that stuff is now off limits. You are not allowed to indulge or engage in that because you've got to be kosher. You've got to be like Jewish people. Uh, the landscape of Christianity would look radically, vastly different than what it is today. Now, that being said, again, what is the controversy? Let's try to understand, wrap our minds around this. So I think uh, there's two passages that kind of give us a strong indication as to what was actually going on. Now, this is going to require just a little bit of background because for some of us, this might be a little bit foreign in terms of some of these words that are going to be used here. But verse 1, it says this, some came teaching. This is what they were teaching. So in other words, what gets communicated has significance. Words carry uh, power. Words carry instruction. Instruction will ultimately inform how we're to live. Okay, so what these guys were saying is they were saying and declaring that unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, this, this was happening in the region of Antioch. Um, let me show you a quick little map. Is that map on there? Okay, I'll show you a quick little map. You guys like maps? Here's a map. So Antioch is, in fact, if you look on there, uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a plane flies, it's 310 miles, all right? So what's, what's 310 miles from here? It's like San Diego? Yeah, something like that, San Diego, something like that. Uh, so imagine going to San Diego. It's the same distance, pretty far. Um, or if you were to take the route, it's about another about 500 miles, so pretty, pretty far distance. Um, so the early church that was, that the chapter starts off in verse 1 is in Antioch. You can see how high that is. So, or in going down to Jerusalem. So, okay, go back to the passage if you wouldn't mind. Thanks. Um, and what we see is that there are those from the outside coming in to these Gentile, non-Jewish people saying, You've got to be circumcised. So, for one, what, what is a Gentile? What is a, what is a non-Jew? Um, this is a really important question to the text. Uh, in the early church, again, like I mentioned, uh, Christianity began in Jerusalem. Um, Christianity started predominantly with ethnic Jews, right? Biological, ethnic Jews. It, it, was, it was a very race-intertwined religion. So if, you could, if you'd ask the question... Uh, what race does Christianity belong to? Like, like you can say within the very beginning, it's exclusively Jewish. It's exclusively Jewish. Now, that was not by design, by God. I mean, per se, I mean, it, at some point, uh, Judaism or Jewish people were kind of like uh, um, a seed that was going to, at some point, go into the ground and, and give forth fruit, and then a harvest of non-Jewish fruit would come up all around it. This is always in God's heart, that the, that the church, the movement that he was beginning 
to bring forth healing and wholeness and life uh, was not going to be limited to Jewish people, ethnic Jewish people, that it was going to be available to everybody on planet Earth, whoever they are. Every person that bears the image of God, every person that was created by God, uh, this hope of healing and restoration and reordering of your life and forgiveness of your sins will be offered and available to everybody. But Christianity started off exclusively within a Jewish context. So um, what you see here is that these people that were part of the Jewish religion were saying that this movement that started off exclusively Jewish needs to remain traditionally, culturally, exclusively Jewish, which means that non-Jews need to adopt Jewish customs and cultures. And one of those Jewish customs and cultures is circumcision. So in short, circumcision is uh, it's an act against the male body that is intended to kind of create some uh, form of a mark in the flesh of another human being. And the idea behind it was to say this is basically a, an indicator that I belong to this tribe of, of Abraham. That's, that's the idea. It was a, it was a cultural uh, boundary line, cultural marker. So if you were circumcised, you belonged to the tribe and the people of, of Abraham. If you were not circumcised, you were kind of an outsider. And so these guys are basically coming in saying, we need to take all those that are outsiders, non-Jewish people who don't have circumcision, and if they're going to be part of our thing, they've got to be circumcised. You, you guys following so far? Doing all right? It's history. You guys okay? Are we sleeping yet? All right, next, verse 5. Uh, gets a little bit more nuanced. It tells us in verse 5, it says, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, uh, they rose up and they said, so, for one, are, are these Christians or non-Christians? Well, Luke tells us they actually belong to Jesus. These are Christians. They're followers of, of Yeshua, followers of Jesus. But they have been raised and bred within a Pharisaical party. Now, if you've ever read the New Testament, you may have come across these people called Pharisees. Oftentimes, Pharisees get a bad rap. They're oftentimes viewed as the bad guys of the New Testament. Um, and that's not very accurate. It's not always accurate. There's some, obviously, that were you know, bad seeds. But for the most part, the Pharisees uh, were, were deeply committed to the Torah, deeply committed to preserving the, the law of God. That's kind of, I mean, they would be viewed as sort of uh, ultra-right-wing, conservative, funda- ultra-fundamentalists. Their main desire was to ensure that the Torah was faithfully kept within the land of Jerusalem, or within the land of Israel, faithfully kept by, uh, by uh, followers of, of God, um, and that if any, in any way the laws were being broken, these guys would basically, kind of like in, in Muslim countries, they would have morality police. That's kind of how these guys operated. They were the morality police. They would basically pull you aside and say, Knock it off, you're sleeping with your girlfriend. Knock it off, you're drinking too much wine. Knock it off, you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. And the idea was that they, they believed that they had lost their land in previous generations because of, of, of sinfulness to God. And so they were deeply committed to honoring God. Now, the world beneath their feet was changing. The changing it was changing. The gospel was actually reshaping the landscape. Uh, so what you have now is all these outsiders coming into the church, coming into this community of, of Jesus people, and they don't know anything about Moses. They don't, they've never heard about the Ten Commandments. They don't know anything about circumcision. They don't know anything about abstaining from, you know, bacon. They don't understand any of this stuff. To them, it's just crazy foreign. All they know is that Jesus is a life giver. All they know is that Jesus promised 
to give them hope and to give them life, and they're trusting this Jesus. And then there are these, these people that are part of this pharisaical, this deeply Jewish, deeply cultural, deeply traditional Jewish sect of Christianity who are saying, okay, if you guys are going to be part of our team, part of our family, you have to get circumcised. And you have to abide by, that's what the word there is, it says, uh, and they are to keep the law of Moses, there be ordered. The word that's used there in the Greek is it's a really strong, like we have to demand, we've got to put demands upon them to live according to the laws of Moses. In case you're wondering how many laws are there of Moses, well, most good Jews know that there are 613 laws of the Torah that basically good Jews try to, to live according to. Now, you can imagine, this is controversial. Well, this is a controversy. Um, Peter actually speaks against this, and I'll just go through this really quickly. It's not a, a point, but it's kind of a sub-point, that Peter charges them. He charges these Judaizers or these uh, religious Pharisees, um, again, who are, who are believers, but obviously misguided believers. Here's, here's two things that he basically says. In um, verse 10, he says, Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So what Peter does, he basically charges them with two things. One, he says, why are you putting God to the test? So in other words, legalism or question what was in the context of what was happening here, they were questioning God. It's basically like you guys are setting yourself up as a prosecuting attorney and that you are accusing God. You don't like the fact that God has accepted these non-Jewish people, that their acceptance by God has not been based upon observance of the Torah or upon, uh, you know, abstinence from other bad moral things, that these guys have been accepted by God based upon their simple confidence in Jesus. And, and you're not happy with that. So you are testing God. Peter's actually uh, doing something really phenomenal. He's actually quoting from an Old Testament passage in Exodus chapter 17, verse 17. It's a story where the children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, as soon as they come out of Egypt, um, you would imagine these people would be extremely happy. Yes, God, thank you. In fact, they offer one chapter. Chapter 13 uh, is like a song. It's a song of Moses where they sing worship. Now, by the time you get to chapter 17, maybe just a couple weeks away, uh, everybody that's part of this community, we're talking maybe a million between a million to three million Jews, uh, they're, they're beginning to complain. And their, com- their complaint goes something like this. God, why are you brought us out here to die? We thought you loved us. We thought you cared about us. Uh, God, you have brought us out here only to wither away underneath the heat of the sun in the desert to die. What type of a God are you? Why are you doing this? And Moses basically turns to them and says, you have put God to the test. It's the exact same language that Peter actually adopts. He's saying, you guys are accusing God. Your real issue is not with these Gentiles that are being brought in, being welcomed. Your real issue is with God. Your real problem, your big hang-up is actually with God. That's helpful to at least, first of all, identify what are some of the big hang-ups that you and I have in life. Some of our real big hang-ups are that we have issues with God. We don't like what God's doing. We don't understand how God can be just, good, and kind, and whatever, and yet allow certain things to happen or not happen in our lives. We don't understand why God claims to be good, and yet he's never given you a spouse, or why he's not giving you a child, or why he's allowed you to spend $40,000 and not get the job of your dreams by way of graduating from Cal Poly. And we look at God, and we're angry, we're frustrated with him. God, why have you failed? Why have you not done something that I have asked and begged and expected you to do? And what, what Peter says is that you guys are you're accusing God. You're charging God with something. You're putting God to the test. 
you're trial, putting them on trial. The second thing that Peter says is that you guys are placing unbearable burdens upon others. In other words, burdens and expectations that, that we've never been able to keep. I mean, that's the logic of Peter's argument. It's like, look, we've had these 613 laws. We've all failed them. We've not done a good job at even keeping them. So we can't even keep them. So why would we think that we can somehow throw these on them and that they're somehow miraculously going to keep them? We're just throwing them underneath burdens. So this is what legalism does. Legalism has this propensity. In other words, whereby we say, I'm going to be made right with God by, by what I do. My relationship with God is going to be determined upon how well I perform. And what we basically do is we are questioning God. And secondly, we're putting burdens on other people. Maybe some of you have been a part of a church or a church community or a small group where it's been led by maybe a very charismatic figure, a person who's got a lot of power and strength and energy, uh, maybe even a lot of zeal, and they are oftentimes mounting all sorts of burdens upon you. You need to go out and share the gospel every week, and you've got to read your Bible every single day, and you've got to keep a journal, and you've got to burn all your secular music because it's evil, and only listen to K-Live, and you've got to do all these things. And if you don't do these things, we, we have the ability to question whether or not you really are right with God. And again, obviously, lists are, are, are bigger and smaller depending upon what type of group. Now, are there, are there lists and are there things that we should live according to? Again, that's a whole other subject and conversation we can have, which we will have in, and as the chapter goes on. But what I would just suggest is this, is that there's a tendency to put burdens, oppressive burdens upon other people. And that's what legalism does. When you walk away, and rather than feeling a sense of relief and awe, yes, and life, taking a deep breath and just living because Jesus sets you free. That's different than walking away and saying, God, I'm a failure. I've not been a good Christian. I don't measure up. I don't do what I should do. Look, guilt and shame has, has an ability to manipulate you, but it never motivates you. It's a horrible motivator. It will never motivate you out of deep joy and delight to do good. You will do good out of a deep sense of not wanting to be the failure anymore. That's radically different than having love transform your heart and saying, I want to do good because my heart is filled with love and satisfaction and acceptance by the one who loves me. It's different. It's radically different. So what Peter's saying is that the way that you guys are conducting yourself, the controversy that you're creating is actually going to be met with this charge of you guys are questioning God, questioning God's actions, questioning God's order of things, and you are mounting these insanely heavy, oppressive uh, burdens upon people's shoulders, which it's just going to crush them. It will destroy them. In other words, you are undermining the very work that God is seeking to do. Jesus comes to relieve the burdens from us. You guys are adding burdens to them. The very opposite. So let's jump in finally to the clarification. We'll wrap this up. Clarification of the gospel. So, I already mentioned that this is basically a theological debate, right? Um, two passages in here actually describe the, the intensity of the debate. The word that's used there that describes that they, they had this, like, contest with each other. They were, like, you know, debating and arguing. It's, it indicates a sense of, like, deep uh, raised voices, discussion, argumentation, perhaps. Um, so, we see this uh, clarification coming out of it. It is, no doubt, a theological debate, but... It is a theological debate that actually has to do with the question of, of, of truth. Where does truth come from? And this is a really important thing to think about and consider. 
truth in some ways, in a lot of ways, I would say, it actually bristles against our cultural sensibilities. And what, what I mean by that is the concept of having truth, this external reality, um, come upon me and influence me to live a certain way or to think a certain way uh, has a tendency that kind of bristles against the, my American individualism that says I can do anything I want, I can live any way that I want, and typically what I use to gauge what's right or wrong in my life is, is lined up with this concept of doesn't make me feel good. In other words, the criteria that for the most part, good Americans, right, good Americans live by is does it make me happy? Does it make me feel good? Do I come alive with regard to indulging, engaging in this? Am I being true to my truest self? And we don't want to be bothered about with, with facts. So, for example, uh, obviously the most obvious glaring one is like, like gravity, all right? Gravity. Gravity is this, this law, the standard of the universe you, that, that says, you know, you're going to be pulled to the gravitational center, the earth. You, you, you cannot resist it. You cannot fight it. Now, you can exercise another law, the law of aerodynamics, to kind of go beyond that. But for the most part, if you say, I don't care about the law or the truth of gravity, I'm going to jump off of a ledge, no matter how far it is, and I'm going to live. Obviously, stupid analogy, but you get the idea. You will pay consequences because you are resisting the concept of, of truth. The truth in this context is gravity. Gravity will pull you down. Gravity will have this tendency to bring hurt if you, if you uh, neglect it, if you turn your back upon it. So we as Americans, I would say, we have sort of this love-hate relationship with truth. Um, we, we love it, especially when truth um, it works in our favor, right? So I think it's one of the reasons why there's a tendency, uh, especially the past few weeks, of like fake news, get rid of fake news because it's bad, it's bad. What it's really saying is bad for my party, bad for my people, bad for my ideas because it contradicts or comes against or uh, uh, influences in a negative light, whatever my ideas. Um, but when truth is, 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 has this confrontational uh, effect upon us, um, we, we, we kind of uh, change our tone. I don't want to hear the facts. I don't want to listen to that, blah, blah, blah. Um, but for the most part, we oftentimes pit truth against love. We oftentimes see them as polar opposites. We say, you know, I just want to be about love. I just want a Christianity that loves my neighbor, loves God, loves other people, loves love. And I don't want to be bothered down by theological concepts and ideas and truths. And uh, Truth divides. Truth is, truth is foreign. Truth is bad. Truth destroys. But the Bible never does this. Never does this. And if, and if you're going to inherit a Christianity that's, that's in Scripture, that's from the Scripture, rather than just you making up your own Christianity, you have to understand that in the Bible, in the story of Scripture, truth and love are never pitted against each other. They go hand in hand. And it's really important to understand that because if, if, we, if we decide to say, I don't like certain ideas or truths or concepts in the Bible, they're outdated, they're antiquated, they don't... They don't synchronize too well with society and culture and our, pro- and our progress as humanity, and therefore it must be eliminated or removed because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's out of sync with culture and society. What was happening is we oftentimes are, are dealing with the same situation of gravity. Um, we're petting, pitting it against each other. But here's what I would suggest, is that when it comes to love, uh, love can be emotionally satisfying. It's, one, I think, one of the reasons why we are more than happy to talk about love. It's a subjective, emotional, it's internal, it makes me feel good, it helps me to feel good about others around me. And when it comes to truth, we oftentimes bristle against that because truth requires, ready? 
Truth requires submission. Love says, just enjoy it. Just enter into it. Feel the warm vibes. Truth says, you got to submit to this. You got to deal with this. You got to be intellectually honest and think about this and consider its implications and its reality. You have to deal with this. And that's, that's what the Bible says. So as we begin to take a look at this, we see that, that Peter is going to make his argument uh, based upon God's truth, God's revelation, as it becomes uh, unveiled. So with that, I want to jump in. I'm going to read a, a quote from C.S. Lewis. It's this great quote. I was actually listening to a message by uh, one of my favorite pastors, a guy by the name of Tim Keller, and he was making a quote from this little essay that C.S. Lewis wrote called Man or Rabbit. Um, actually found it on the internet and read the whole thing actually a couple times because it's so, so good. And it's basically dealing with this fundamental question. The question is this. Like, can a person, human being, and it's probably written like 1943, somewhere around there, maybe, maybe pre-war, um, World War II, um, can a human being uh, do good in life and, and live a good life apart from God? It's the question, right? It's a really relevant question. Really relevant, especially for today. Because some of you may have asked that question. Some of you know those that are wrestling with that question. Can't you just be a good person and live a good life apart from God? Well, C.S. Lewis in this essay basically just says, how do, you, how, how do you even know what a good life is? Who defines good life? Who, who has the authority to actually say, this is a good life? That's his whole, it's such a brilliant essay. But this is just a little snippet from it, and there's a lot of quotes that I want to quote from it, but I'm going to refrain myself. I actually posted some of them on my Facebook. And I actually posted this whole essay on my Facebook, so you can check it out. Listen to this. This is really good. He says knowledge, and he's describing the difference between knowledge and just simple love. Like those, the, the two need to be brought together in order for life to happen, in order for the good life to actually happen. Truth and love have to sync. And this is what he describes. Knowledge of facts must make a difference to one's actions. Suppose you found a man on the point of starvation, and you wanted to do the right thing, the loving thing, right? So you see a starving guy, you're like, I want to help him. He's starving. I want to do the loving thing. If you had no knowledge of medical science, facts, truth, you would probably give him a large, solid meal, and as a result, the man would die. That is what comes of working in the dark. This is a great quote. So it makes so much sense. But the reality is the same is true with Scripture, that God speaks, his word gives life, counsel, it gives light in the darkness, and we could either listen to it and respond to it and, and lovingly be transformed by it or turn our backs against it and bristle against it and say, I don't like it. It goes against my sensibilities. It goes against culture at large. And we resist it. And, and consequences will pay. And the same way of, of resisting a gravity. You're saying, I, don't, I deny it. I'm a gravity denier. And I, deny, I, don't, I don't live according to it. I don't want to live according to it. And consequences will nonetheless be paid. So with that being said, uh, what Peter is going to do now is going to basically answer. Uh, th- these are kind of implicit they're not explicit, but there's three questions I think uh, Peter's really attempting to answer. Uh, we're only going to look at the first two uh, this week. Next week, we'll look at the third. But here's the questions. I'll give them to you, and then we'll jump in. One, the question is, uh, really, who is accepted by God? Who are the people that are actually accepted by God? Um, do you have to have a certain skin color to be accepted by God? Uh, who, like, uh, uh, ethnicity? Like, who is actually accepted by God? Do you, you have to abide by certain rituals? And religious ceremony to be accepted by God? The real question, underlying question, who really is accepted by God? Second question is, what must be done to be accepted? And then third question is, uh, what does acceptance ultimately look like? So we'll just look at the first two. One, let's jump in. Um, who is accepted by God? I'll, again, I'll, just, I'll let uh, Peter answer this question because that's, I think, what he's trying to say. Who's accepted by God? 
Acts chapter 15, verses 8 through 9. It says, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness, is actually referencing uh, earlier in the book of Acts, uh, Sennara out of chapter 10. Uh, Peter goes, uh, he gets this crazy vision, this dream, uh, to go visit this guy by the name of Cornelius. Uh, ironically, the same time, this guy Cornelius has a dream and a vision that, that he's supposed to send for some random dude by the name of Peter. It's crazy, it's amazing, it's God at work behind the scenes. Peter shows up at his house. Uh, Peter is Jewish. Peter was circumcised. Peter did not eat pork sandwiches. Peter did not eat bacon. Peter lived a very good kosher lifestyle. He shows up at the house of this Gentile, non-Jewish guy, and Peter's like, look, you, you know that good Jews don't typically come walking into the house of a Gentile. You are not like me. You are culturally different than me. Uh, we don't have associations with you, but God showed me that I'm supposed to come in. <laughs> All right, if you're, if you're Cornelius, you're like, thanks. Like, so you basically just called me trash. Now you're going to come to my house. Okay, thanks. Um, but the fact of the matter is he comes in and this miracle happens. This guy Cornelius receives Jesus and he receives the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about that next week. And what happens is his life is transformed. Peter's blown away because the very same gift that Peter and all these other Jewish people received, now these non-Jewish uh, alienated, marginalized, unaccepted people have been apparently accepted. They've been welcomed. God did something that was beyond them to indicate the fact that he actually accepted them. He says, and then he's referring to this in Acts 15. He says, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, these Gentiles, foreigners, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them. This is really fascinating. This actually plays into many other New Testament teachings and ideas that like Paul will pick up on this and he'll say there's no distinction or no male or female. It's not that maleness or femaleness does not matter because it absolutely does. But what he's saying is that your acceptance in this family, in this community is not based upon your genetics. It's not based upon your, uh, your body type. It's not based upon your religious background. It's based upon something entirely other than that. And this is extremely good news. Because this is a culture that alienated lots of people. So it's in that light, it's just like our culture. <laughs> but this is what Peter's saying. He's describing that this gospel, this acceptance is for all. And then Romans 10, verse 13, Paul would later write about this. And he would say this, whosoever, it's a great word out of the King James Bible. Whosoever shall call upon them, Lord, shall be saved. So who's it for? Whosoever. Who's welcomed? whosoever. What if my skin color is different? It's whosoever. It's not based upon a color of your skin. It's not based upon any types of ideas. Now, the fact of the matter is, when we come, God then begins to transform and change us, and that's a whole other subject we'll touch on in the weeks to come. But at the beginning of the gate, it's open to anybody. No one is excluded. All are called and welcomed and invited to come into this family that God bids. He calls. Whosoever will come. So, who is accepted? Uh, in the context of this passage, Gentiles. Gentiles are accepted. And that's, this is shocking. This is absolutely shocking to see, to read. You know, one other final thing. Uh, at the end of Romans, um, Paul is finishing up this letter, and he lists, I don't know, some 20, 23, 26 people that are friends, right? So he's writing a letter. At the end of the letter, if you write a letter to a bunch of people living in a house church, whatever, connected to a house church, 
you're going to finish and say, you know, say hi to Bob and say hi to Jim and say hi to, you know, give them greeting and make sure that they bring my food next time and make sure that, you know, they're doing good and treating their family well. That's what Paul does at the end of of these letters. At the end of Romans, he writes, and almost half of the list of people that he lists are are women. You realize how radically countercultural this is? What Paul is doing is he's raising women to this level of dignity, which the culture did not dignify. Why? Because that's what the gospel does. It says all are welcome. All are invited to come. All are part of this thing. So who is accepted? This is what we see in the context here. These Gentiles, which means those that are really, really, really far from God, as well as those that think that they're actually really, really close to God who is welcomed, those that are super religious, as well as those who are totally irreligious, who's accepted, those that are rich in this world's good, and those that are totally impoverished by this world's definition. Like, it's it's open for all. That's what we see. It's powerful. Amazing. Second thing that we see in this idea of the clarification of the gospel is we see... uh, what must be done to be accepted? And this is where it gets kind of nuanced and really important. I just want to finish up some ideas with regard to looking at it. So with that being said, there's a couple things to think about. Uh, Christianity, within, if you've been around Christianity for any length of time, um, you know that sometimes Christianity can be very tribalized, um, filled with tribes. So I'll, I'll give you my personal um, story, my personal experience. So I got saved when I was around 16, almost 16 years old. Um, I got saved at Calvary Chapel down in Costa Mesa. Great church. Love it. It's amazing. Have, have amazing, a lot of amazing memories. Um, but one of the things I discovered that when I first planted the church up here, I was 23 years old, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm much older than that now. And the, the reality is uh, that one of the things I discovered in my life, when I branched out and began to plant a church, I, I began to realize at some point in my life, I don't know how it happened, it no, no one ever taught me this, it, it, I never like, actually heard things like this come across in a conference or read it in a book, but it began to become something that I imbibed, I believed, and I lived out. And it was this mentality of, like, like, we're awesome. How we do stuff is awesome. Like, we piece the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We go through books of the Bible. Everybody else is not awesome. We are awesome. And I began to kind of believe this mentality. This tr- it's tribalism. It's tribalism. And, what, what, and again, I'm, I'm not casting this uh, on, on anybody. I'm, this is me. This is all me. It's my personal experience. Uh, and so if you don't like it, it's, it's, it's my story, it's my experience, how I lived, how I felt. And at some point, God had to deal with me and show me that this is not an extension of the gospel. It's actually uh, an extension of insecurities and me trying to justify my existence in my life on something other than Jesus. And it's damaging. It's destructive. The mentality, the idea, the, the concept behind it is actually destructive to the very purposes that God is seeking to bring about in this world. Okay, that's my story. But again, I just simply say this, that Christianity, it's not, and it's not distinct to that tribe. I mean, lots of tribes, I think, have this ten- tendency. Um, and again, I see it and I talk to lots of people in various different types of denominations and tribes. And not that there's anything wrong with denominations or tribes. I don't think there's anything wrong with them. But when tribes or denominations become the main thing by which we use as the criteria to determine whether or not I should accept you or not accept you, then we can be certain that we have made an idol out of our methods. Uh, word, I didn't coin this, but it's the idea of like methodology. We've created idolatry out of methods. We've made the methods by which we engage with the Bible, engage with other Christians, 
engage with God. We made that method the means by which I decide whether or not I accept you or I reject you. Because as long as your methods synchronize with my methods, I accept you. If you do the very things that I do, I'll accept you. You're part of my, my, my clan, my team, my brothers, my tribe. If you don't do the things that I do, if you don't live according to these things, if you don't have the same methods and standards that I have, then I, I reject you. I'm condescending upon you, upon you, upon you, for you, towards you. But the fact of the matter is, is that this, this is, this is uh, ubiquitous all around the world. And we see this all the time. It's part of the nature of, of, of human heart. And it's not part of the gospel. And it needs to be called out for what it is. So with that being said, uh, really, what must be done to be accepted? I want to read a couple passages out of a book by a guy by the name of uh, Dr. Richard Lovelace. Uh, he is actually a, uh, a professor of church history at Gordon-Conwell uh, University and has some really amazing things to say. I'm just going to let him say these things because they're, they're so they're gold. They're so gold. And I'll make a couple comments and we'll wrap this up. You guys still doing okay? You guys all right? No one sleeping? All right, good. All right, here we go. Let's read this. And we'll come back to those passages at the end. So he says this. When the church had lost track of an important element in the saving work of Christ and was teaching that believers are justified not by faith but by being sanctified. So a little uh, unpacking here. Uh, the, the idea of sanctification basically means the act by which I'm becoming conformed, becoming made like Jesus. So like I said, when you come to Jesus, there are, there are no barriers on who can come. When you come to Jesus, Jesus then now begins to reshape your heart, your desires, your actions, your life, your, your behaviors, become transformed. That process we call sanctification, sanctified. You're becoming sanctified like Jesus. When, when we confuse sanctification, big theological Bible word, uh, from the idea of justification. So what does justification mean? So just take the word apart. Don't you know, demystify it. Just, it's the act of becoming uh, made right. That's what justice is. Justice is rightness, righteousness. Um, the justification is the process or the act of becoming just. Um, and the question is, is how are we made just or made right before God? Which presupposes you and I as human beings are not in a right relation with God. Right? So what it presupposes that you and I have done things to this relationship with, with the one who created the universe that has put us out of sorts in right relationship with him. All right? So think about this on a human level. You have people that have been good friends of yours in your life, family members that you were once really close to, and then something happens, an offense takes place. Now you're not on the right with them. So when they show up at your house on Thanksgiving, there's like the weird awkwardness. There's this weird space, right? You show up at church, and there they are. You're like, ah. Oh. Man, I hope they don't see me. You're walking down Trader Joe's. You're like, I'm going to jump aisles because I hopefully they don't see me. There's a weird gap. There's a weird space. Well, the, the Bible describes that is cosmic. That's, that's the way it is between you and I and God in our natural state, that there is this gap, this space between us and God. It has to do with the sense of, of offense. And so what it presupposes, somehow something needs to be done to put that gap back to right. That process is what the Bible would describe as justification. God putting us right back into a right relationship with himself. And it's the question that Peter's wrestling with. How is one made right with God? By offering sacrifices to goats? By spending $60 million to God? By reading your Bible every day? How are we made right with God? By going to church, being committed, giving away our clothing to the poor, living as minimalists? How are we made right with God? That's the big question. Um, 
So what he's saying is that when the church has lost track of an important element in the saving work of Christ and, has, and, and was teaching that believers are justified not by faith but by being sanctified, uh, the result is an unconscious need for lists of clean and unclean activities. It's a rebirth of Phariseeism. Okay, next slide. He goes on, he says, Thus, those who are not secure in Christ, they grasp about for spiritual life preservers. Now, carefully listen to this. It's so filled with meat and goodness. Uh, those who are not secure in Christ, those that look at the relationship with Christ and like, I'm not really sure where I stand with him, what they do is they search for spiritual life preservers with which to support their confidence. And in their frantic search, they not only cling to the shreds of ability and righteousness they find in themselves, all right, so they look at themselves and they're like, I'm so much better than them because I'm a minimalist and they are a constant consumer. Or I'm so much better than them because I read the King James Bible and they read like something like the New Living Translation. How dare they? We have this tendency to look at our actions and say, I'm way better than them. We, we do that all the time. And what he's saying is that we have this tendency to cling to these things. And then he says, not only cling to the shreds of ability and righteousness they find themselves, but they fix upon their race, their membership in a party, their familiar uh, social patterns, their culture as a means of self-recommendation uh, and justification. So in other words, what he's saying is that we look for anything, anything that we can somehow cling to. It's like this life preserver that somehow if I cling to it tight enough, I will give myself a sense of buoyancy in the midst of a world where I feel like everything is sinking around me. You ever feel like that? The world's sinking. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. We've got to judge it. We've got to judge. Someone's got to judge it. Who's going to stand up for righteousness? I guess I will. Well, what's, what's keeping you buoyant? What's keeping me buoyant is I'm part of this tribe. We do this. We read the Bible every day. I preach the gospel six times a week to people. I go to prayer meetings at 5.30 in the morning three times a week. I'm way better than the rest of Christianity that's going to hell. We're clinging to these things as a means of saying we're better than them. We're looking at our actions, our activities, or what he describes as our uh, sanctification, and then using that as the means to say, look, I'm staying afloat. I'm buoyant. I'm justified. I'm alive. I'm living. And he goes on to say, the culture is not, uh, the culture is put on as if it were an armor against self-doubt, but it becomes a mental straitjacket which cleaves to the flesh and can never be removed except, this is it, except through the comprehensive faith in the saving work of Christ. <laughs> this is so good. Uh, look, let me just say it this way. If you can get this, this, this will set you free. If you're the type of person that looks at everybody else that's not like you, and you are critical of them, you judge them, you're condescending, you're tribal, the only thing that will set you free is, is a comprehensive faith and the saving work of Christ. That's totally amen worthy. You guys don't say amen because you are too mellow. But I still love you because I don't judge you. <laughs> I love you. Next slide. Next slide. Once faith is exercised. This is really good. This is where it gets really good. Once faith is exercised. However, in a Christian, uh, a Christian is free to wear his culture like a comfortable suit of clothes. He can shift to other cultural clothing temporarily if he wishes to do so. And he is released to admire and appreciate the differing expressions of Christ shining out through other cultures. What he's saying is that when you have a comprehensive understanding of the saving work of Jesus, this actually liberates you to say, you know what? 
if you're somebody that has a tendency to be way more reserved in your faith and your expression of faith. In other words, you might be way more in line and league with like a Presbyterian community of faith-filled people. They have a tendency to like want uh, meaty, heady, theological, doctrinal, um, reformed flavors of expression of faith, and yet may not be very expressive. And if, if that's you, but if you have a tendency to focus on that, then you may be tempted to look at those that are way more Pentecostal or charismatic or way more expressive and look at them condescendingly. How dare they be so loose and crazy in their expression of faith? Don't they have any sense of reverence for God? Who are they? Who do they claim to be? And then others, on the other hand, could say that have this tendency to be very expressive in their faith. They're the type of people, if you go to the church, they're dancing, they're singing, they're moving, their bodies are swaying when the music begins to play. They're into it. You can tell they're physically into it. And they have a tendency to maybe walk into a church that is way less expressive and look at it and be like, this place is dead. This place is dead. God is not at work here. Look, both examples are being critical. Both examples are in danger of, like I said, methodology, making an idol out of a method instead of looking at the comprehensive goodness of Christ, which allows for us to accept one another. You're using a method or an expression of faith, faith as the criteria as to whether or not you will accept another person or reject another person. And this is exactly what Peter's addressing, is that, look, God accepted these Gentiles not because they were Jewish, not because they were circumcised, not because they ate kosher, because he loves them. And what Peter's arguing for is saying, if God accepted them, shouldn't we also do the same? Or do we have the right to sit here and be like, well, if God accepts them, I still don't have to. What Peter's saying is that if we choose that route, we are not living in consistency with how the universe is, meaning God has set things up to flourish and function and flow in his truth. That's what Peter's basically inviting us to really accept and understand. See, this is oftentimes how insidious this is, that it is possible to become overly focused on how you express faith or your method, which only serves to reveal really your lack of understanding of the faith you express. That's all it does. When you become overly focused on the faith that you express and how you express it, the various nuances, the various distinctives that make you or your understanding of the faith uh, unique, when you focus on those things to the point where you uh, dismiss or you reject or you uh, castigate or you have to put down or condemn other people because they don't live in that same consistent expression of faith as you, you just simply demonstrate you, you don't understand the faith that saved you. What you're curious is a comprehensive understanding of the faith. That you are accepted as you are, as broken, as dysfunctional, as jacked up, as dirty, as religious, as irreligious as you are in Christ. And God will change you, transform you. Um, one final thing, and I want to read another little, little passage. In other words... It's possible to be more dependent upon the culture of being a Christian than upon Christ himself. Let me repeat that. It's possible to be more dependent upon the culture that you are creating within Christianity than upon Christ himself. 
I think that was what was happening within these Judaizers. They were coming and saying, we have to maintain the culture of circumcision and abiding by the law of Moses. And if we lose that, then we will lose something. So there was a deep dread of loss. And it's what led to this intensity in the argument. And in the final end, Peter just says, look, this is about Jesus. It's not about the culture that we've inherited or that we feel like we need to impart to the next generation. This is about Jesus. What is Jesus doing here now? Christ is the center of this entire thing. Let me, let me read one final quote, and, and I'm done. We'll go back to those passages, and we'll finish. Next, next quote is, okay, this is so good. This is like a freebie, but it's so good. Listen, ready? Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Only, only a fragment. This is an assessment. I think it's true. I think it's true. I've been a pastor for, I don't know, 23, 24 years. I think it's true. I, th- I think, in other words, this means that in this community, there are some that you, you get it. You, you, you understand the, the beauty, the acceptance of Jesus. Others of you, you, you wrestle with it. It's kind of normal. It's, not, it's natural. It happens. It's just part of the, the there's no, you know, no, you know, got to feel bad about this. It's not something you should feel bad about. It's just the reality. It's oftentimes what we wrestle with. But he goes on to say, many have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. Um, but in their day-to-day ex- existence, they rely on their sanctification for their justification. Meaning, you, you have a tendency to look at how well am I living for God? How good am I doing today? How much have I read my Bible in the past week? How much have I prayed? How many people have I shared the gospel with? And you look at your life and you determine your current status with God, if you're, either it's good, really good, or really messed up and really bad based upon your, your actions, your, your activities, your performance. Like it's, it's all based upon your performance. Do you, do you realize how unsettling that is? Okay, just keep listening. It's really good. You guys doing okay? All right, all right. You want my sermon to be done? Anybody? Okay, good. Thank you. Um, all right, I'm, I'm wrapping it up. Then he goes on and says, but in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for their justification, drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, the recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. Few know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Luther's platform. Next slide. You are accepted looking outward in faith and claiming the holy alien righteousness of Christ as the only ground for acceptance. The idea of alien means it's foreign to you. It's outside of you. It's, it's not in you. you know, uh, it's outside of you. It, it comes from God as a gift to you. And he goes on to say, uh, it says, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons so pause think about this if there's a deep level of crippling insecurity in your life does this shoe apply does it fit is this something that might describe you is it is it maybe that your deep insecurity in god with god uh, i oftentimes have given this analogy before many times we have a tendency to think of god as this really angry grumpy frustrated ticked off landlord that owns a slum and and we're squatters in his in his apartment complex we know that we don't deserve or we don't belong there, but we're just, you know, we're, we're, we're biding time until God finally just kicks us out. He says, You're, I'm done with you. Get away. It's how we think about God. We're never secure. We would never go to his apartment for dinner. We would avoid him at all costs. It's, it's deep-rooted insecurity. What he's saying is that this deep-rooted insecurity oftentimes 
goes hand in, hand in hand with this reality that I'm oftentimes judging my current placement with God based upon how well I'm doing with God. And he says, their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. So good. He's basically just saying that, look, these are, these are actual uh, relational elements that we use that oftentimes with other people are damaging, destructive. Because I think we'd all agree, obviously, that, that anger and judgment and ang- uh, all, all, in, all these things have a tendency, they're relationship breakers. And what he's saying is that these oftentimes come from the fact that we have deep insecurities about our relationship with God. We don't really know where we stand. And here's what Peter's saying, is that who is accepted? All. And Paul's word, whosoever. What must be done to be accepted? Let's go back to the passage that I have. What must be done? Verse 9. Peter puts it very concisely. He says, God cleansed their hearts by faith. He ends the passage in verse 11 by saying, it's, it's the gift of God. It's the grace of God. A, a gift is given by somebody and to be received by somebody. And, and how do we receive that? We, we accept it. That's what faith is. Faith is, is, is this trust in the one who is giving. So it really boils down to this question, do I trust this one? Is he trustworthy? It's not so much, um, yes, do, do I trust him? But, but really, even more in an objective sense, is he actually trustworthy? Like, can, can I trust him? Is he dependable? Like, uh, you know, I should say, actually, unlike us, you know, right? Um, I try my hardest to be a man of my word. And I try as hard as I can to show up on time when I say I'm going to be on time. But I, I'm, I don't always do that, you know, because, but the fact of the matter is, is, is God trustworthy? And how do we know they can be trusted? And this always brings us back to the cross because what we see in Christ, in Jesus, on the cross, is we see this, this depiction, this God who has entered into our world to kind of quote Keller one final time. He says this, that the gospel really is this, and I don't have a slide for it, but just listen to it. The gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. All right, so let me, let me it, unpack it one more time so you can listen carefully and bring it in to your heart and think about it and consider it. Uh, we are far more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. So the question you might ask yourself, how flawed, how sinful, how jacked up, how messed up are you? <laughs> the answer, from Keller at least, uh, is, is you're way worse than you actually think you are. All right, if you don't believe that, ask your spouse, ask your roommate, ask someone that knows you really well, like a parent or your guardian or someone you've had a close relationship with, or your child even, God forbid, ask your child, how, how jacked up am I, you know, child? You're horrible. You're, you're incorrigible. I hate being around you. And we are far worse than we can even imagine we are. And yet, the flip side of that coin is, he says, yet at the very same time, you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. So how loved are you? How much does God love you? So whatever your high watermark is, just throw it off the limits and go into the realm of limitlessness. 
Wherever your watermark is in terms of your understanding of how much God loves you, it's beyond that, beyond what you can even conceive or imagine. That's the depth of God's love. How do we know that? Because the cross. On the cross, we see love and truth coming together for a purpose, to take upon Jesus himself, the sin, the shame, the brokenness, the alienation, the betrayal, the exile, the banishment, all of that, that's what the cross is, upon himself. All that we feel, all that we experience, because of our brokenness, because we've looked at the uppercase T truth of the universe and said, no, my truth, lowercase t, be done. We've looked at the good creator of the universe and said, no, let my will, my actions, my proclivities, my desires be what overrides all your will. And we've faced the consequences of gravity. We've fallen. We've become lost. We've been banished. We've been exiled. We've felt the brokenness of our own sinfulness. And yet we have a God that says, I'm not going to leave you in that state. I will come into this world and I will take upon myself the fullness of the banishment, the brokenness, the sinfulness, the consequences. That is a God that has demonstrated what Paul said. He has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet in our sinful status. Died for us. That's a God you can trust. The gospel is always about believing that, trusting that, letting your heart embrace that. So, I'm done. Why don't we all stand? Did someone clap? (laughs) Sorry. I knew I went long. So, let's respond. And the worship team, come on up. And for some of us, it's like, it's about doing business with God. Because, look, for some of you guys, listen, some of the insecurities in your life with God may have to do with the fact that, that you are a Christian. You are genuinely transformed by God. But you are constantly trying to gauge whether or not you are right with God based upon what you're doing, your performance. You keep slipping back into the very same type of problem, controversy, that plagued the early church. You need a comprehensive understanding of the grace of Christ. For others of you, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe the real uh, turmoil in your soul is the fact that, that, that you, you really are apart from God. You're far from God. Uh, your sins, the Bible says, have actually separated you. And the invitation from God is always the same. Come, call upon the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. God will come and deliver and wash and cleanse and accept you for who you are in the context of where you are. But here's the great thing about this God is that he will transform you. He will give you new desires, give you a new heart, give you a new life, transform you to become the person that he created you to be.